The great revivalist, uh, a great preacher, British preacher, the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, travelled to America in 1735. Uh, he went by invitation of a man called General Oglethorpe. Uh, they later, up, uh, later ended up being uh, quite good friends, actually. But one evening they were engaged in a conversation that became quite heated. At one moment after being challenged, Oglethorpe blurted out these quite famous words. He just said, I never forgive. I never forgive. To which John Wesley wisely replied, Then, sir, I pray you have never sinned. I never forgive. I wonder, is that you? I wonder if this is the kind of tone of your heart and things in your head. I'll never forgive what they did to me. I'll never forgive him. I'll never forgive her. If you're a Christian here today, you know an absolute forgiveness, an overwhelming flood of forgiveness. It has washed you clean. When Jesus died on the cross, he offered through his life and through his death and his consequent resurrection a newness of life, a forgiveness for all the wrong that you have done, for all your sin. As the great hymn says, probably one of my favourite, there's a fountain filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins, Jesus. And those who plunge beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Faith in Jesus Christ, you see, brings forgiveness of sin, which readies us for an eternity with God. That is the gospel. The gospel of grace. Christians, we sit here today as undeserving, forgiven sinners. You've been forgiven ultimately, eternally, completely in Christ. And given that reality, is there someone that you struggle yourself to forgive? It was the issue, certainly for General Oglethorpe, and it's the issue in our passage today. I don't know, just cast your minds back to last week, if you were here or you've listened uh, on the internet. Uh, you saw that brilliant defence of Paul, uh, his integrity being questioned as an apostle of God. And do you remember how he defended himself? He went through quite systematically. He defended his integrity by, he had a clear conscience by the grace of God and the truth of Christ that he was then pouring that out into the church in Corinth through his mercy and his love. And he had to defend himself. Because his integrity had been called into question. He'd been slandered. There were accusations. He was very much under attack. He defends himself. But now Paul writes to this church in Corinth and urges them to forgive this individual who had been so damaging to Paul's ministry and the church collectively in Corinth. And so he calls this church to forgive this offender. <coughs> But what has happened to Paul uh, to get him to this point, if you like? Let me just kind of give you the broad brushstroke of what's going on with this letter and the other letters to this church in Corinth. Remember how Paul had got a report back from Timothy after his visit to Corinth, and clearly there were troubles in Corinth. Paul had therefore changed his travel plans. He made a kind of an impromptu visit to them, much shorter than planned and unannounced, and he thought that would sort everything out. It did not. Paul was opposed, particularly by this certain leader in the church. And the problem was with the church itself is they stood idly by. They did nothing. They didn't come to Paul's defence. Paul's integrity had been challenged. And Paul left Corinth very bruised, rejected. 
And so he wrote to the church. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 4. And you'll see he mentions that letter. We sometimes call it the severe letter or the letter of tears. He wrote that back to them. Uh, and we see the result of that letter later on in 2 Corinthians. Why don't you just flip forward to chapter 7 for just a, a brief moment. We see the result of the severe letter. Let me read a few verses. Chapter 7, verse 8. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, the letter of tears, the severe letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so we, are, we were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness, listen to this, what readiness to see justice done. A justice had been done in the church in Corinth. It seems the teacher who would attack the integrity of Paul had received a justice. A, what we might call a church discipline had been applied to this man. It also seems that this severe letter that had been written, the majority of the church had therefore repented after listening to this severe letter of their standing idly by as Paul had been accused. There was godly repentance, as we see in chapter 7, verse 10. Now, we don't know the details of what that looked like, the godly repentance. We don't know the details of the church discipline that was applied to this man. Now, if the church were consistent, they probably most likely expelled the man from the church. That is what they had done. If you read back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they did that for the man who was caught in an incestuous relationship. But as is the intention of church discipline, it seems the leader who had hurt Paul so much had repented. Praise God. That severe letter that Paul had written with so much anguish, tears, had achieved what it had set out to achieve. The leader had been expelled. He was sorry, he'd repented, changed. And the problem now that we're looking at in our passage today is that the church were unwilling to forgive him. So Paul warns them in this passage that if the church steered, if you like, on this unforgiving course, they were heading towards shipwreck, if you like. They love the gospel of grace, as many of us will do here. They want the forgiveness and, and long for the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. But they're not prepared to live that gospel out in and through their lives, through their, through their own moral decision making. And offer the grace and forgiveness that they've known in Christ to others. Now I know what I've been thinking as I've been preparing this. And maybe you're a little bit like this as you sit here today. You might be thinking like me, you have no idea, Paul. You have no idea how much that person has hurt me. I struggle to forgive someone. Do you feel that? You still feel the pain so much today, it's so raw in your life that you're going, no way. And you've already decided, I'm going to shut this out. This is really hard, isn't it? If someone has hurt you so much. I want you to remember the pain that Paul has experienced. 
He is not writing to this church and we are not listening to a man who has not experienced this, who hasn't felt this. He talks about that pain and the hurt. Look, go back to our uh, our chapter, chapter 2, and we're in verse 5. He speaks about that pain and the hurt in in verse 5 of our passage. Look at it. If anyone has caused grief, pain, suffering, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. (coughs) You see that on your outlines. There's a little bit of an introductory point there. Shared grief of the church is spelled out by Paul here. But do note, as we begin, note, Paul doesn't name the individual, does he? You see now, there's a, a great kindness right at the beginning here. He doesn't, want, uh, doesn't kind of spell out his name, the one who has caused grief. He could do, but there's restraint. Because Paul knows that if he were to emblazon his name in this verse here, it would be kind of spilled across the early church and, and for all time. It would draw too much attention to this man. It would be unnecessary. It would be unhelpful for him and the church. But also note, it seems that Paul is playing down the pain that he has felt. Look at it. He has not so much grieved me. I mean, you've got a question. Is Paul really denying the situation? Is he kind of saying, oh, it's not hurt me? No. I think what Paul is trying to emphasise here is that Something I think we find quite difficult in our very individualistic culture. Look what he says. He says, if anyone's caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. There is a corporate nature to grief and suffering in the church. We looked at this passage at the beginning of the year, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. It says this, if one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is on it, every part rejoices with it. The same principle is applied here. That kind of mutual joy, that kind of mutual grief shared in the church is littered throughout Paul's letters. Because we are united in Christ. We're the body of Christ. And that's not just a kind of Christian cliche. That's a reality of who we are. The church is an eternal community of people who trust and follow Jesus. United to him and therefore united together. So here, Paul was hurt. And therefore the church was hurt. And we know this. It happens to us, doesn't it? It happens to you, it happens to me. That, that is what you feel, I will feel too, to some extent. And vice versa. If you're encouraged and joyful and skipping around, yay, great, life is brilliant, Jesus is great, I will be encouraged by that. Thank you. Likewise, if you suffer loss and if you are grieving... We will grieve with you. And we will feel that. See, the church for Paul was about commitment to one another, accountability, which included loving and firm discipline. And central to that is the sharing of the Lord's Supper, which is why we are sharing the Lord's Supper today. We'll talk about that uh, later on. But Paul wouldn't recognise many of the attributes and the kind of the way that people view church today. He just wouldn't, wouldn't... enter into any of his categories of his mind at all. You know, as an option of just a few on a Sunday morning. As a priority that's held among other priorities. It all depends. Oh, I've got a good trip. I can go with my friends there. You know, no. He wouldn't understand that. As a club that you can kind of transfer to and from when, it, when, the, when the club that you're in doesn't kind of suit where, you've got, where you want it to go. No. 
Paul doesn't understand those kind of categories of church which we utilise today. Paul wouldn't recognise the person that calls himself a Christian and doesn't think that church is particularly important and therefore hardly comes or hardly comes, it never comes at all. To Paul, church is about mutual love, about giving and sharing and serving and encouraging one another through the word. I wonder, do you pray for us corporately here at Christchurch Earlsfield? Do you give of yourself or do you consider church as, you know, just a consumer? You come and sit, you come and take what you want. It's a product that you pick up when it suits you. I think the church in this country, and but dare I say, especially in London, I don't think it would be hardly recognised by Paul today. The church in Corinth shared the grief and the joy of Paul and of each other. And the offender has caused grief. Now let me note finally on this verse that Paul is keen not to exaggerate the situation. Again, a wonderful kindness of Paul here. As he says, they've been grieved to some extent. To some extent. Don't, don't overdo it, guys. And it, don't put it too severely and exaggerate. Very careful, very loving, very considerate of one that has caused him so much pain. That's the situation. That, that's the picture, if you like, of what's going on. Now, what does Paul do? He calls the church now to respond in line with the gospel that they themselves have received. The gospel of forgiveness. And he calls them, our first point here, <coughs> he calls them to forgive and affirm their love for the offender. Let me read those uh, couple of verses again to refresh our minds. The punishment, or justice there, inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, of these three verses, the concern is very much for the offender. The concern is that he would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, the, the overwhelm word there is, is literally a word used elsewhere, to be drowned. He's, not to be, he's so close to drowning in his sorrow. Such is the, the feeling of the discipline that he's uh, been, uh, uh, kind of uh, received. <coughs> he had received a discipline following that severe letter of Paul. There had been a discipline or a punishment, the word is used here in verse 6. And now Paul is saying it's sufficient. Paul is assuring the church here. They've done the right thing. They've disciplined this man. But Paul is saying you don't need to push it any further. It's sufficient. You've done enough. The man is close to being drowned in his sorrow. That's enough. I wonder what you think about all this talk of uh, church discipline. It's often not talked about today. And I think that's very dangerous. Too many brush off the idea of church discipline, especially if they're to be the recipient of it. Often today, with the number of churches around in a particular area, city, a town, or whatever, people just, if they're to receive any discipline, they just move on to another church. Totally unaccountable, <coughs> unchallengeable. And for Paul, again, that would be an utterly ridiculous notion, an idea of church. Because discipline in any church is there to help us to become more godly. It is for our good. As we submit ourselves to the leadership of a church, uh, we do so with the understanding that yes, they will love us, they will serve us, they will teach us God's word, but also 
They will call us to account, which includes disciplining us when we need that correction. Some of you know I've not talked about much. Over the last year I've been encouraging and praying for a couple of my friends who were caught in an affair. Uh, The churches which they attend have both disciplined them. Both of them were involved in leadership positions in the church and they were removed from those positions. That was part of the discipline. And for a time they were unable to share the Lord's Supper in their churches until it was clear that they were repentant. See, the purpose of any discipline is to show the offender the seriousness of their sin before God, ultimately, and amongst the congregation. Had that affair been exposed publicly... The individuals would have been disciplined publicly, brought to the front of the church, and the church would have been told what had happened. Thankfully for them, it was a private matter. But praise God, both individuals are repentant and a damaged marriage is being restored wonderfully and slowly. But without that discipline, both of those individuals who I speak to regularly would not have felt or truly known the seriousness of their sin. And they are thankful for that discipline. But don't think any punishment here that we see, the word used there, or discipline, is archaic or out of date. We exercise church discipline here and will continue to do so. We do so in a loving but a serious way that seeks to restore the individual before God and the church. But Paul is saying here to the church, enough. You've disciplined this individual enough. This man has probably been expelled from the church for a time. Time out to see, if you like, the severity of his sin. But now he's repented and he's close to being overwhelmed by his sorrow. He longs to be back in the loving community of that church. To be with God's people, he yearns uh, for intimacy and the encouragement of the church uh, that every repentant believer should want and long for. And so Paul says in verse 7, Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. But we know how hard that is, don't we? It is really hard. When you individually have been hit and hurt or when a church corporately has been hurt by an individual, someone's actions, it is so difficult to forgive them, isn't it? We, we get more like General Oglethorpe, don't we? I never forgive, but we must. If we refuse to forgive those who have hurt us, how can we expect to be recipients of the forgiveness that we know in Christ? Paul is really strong here, and there's no option, by the way. Look at verse 8. I urge you, It's a really, I mean, urge is kind of, go on in our language. It's not here. It's really, you're going to do this. Therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, the word reaffirm, it's a very formal kind of judicial word here. And it's parallel. The the man has received a formal kind of uh, discipline. This is what is happening. And and likewise, he is going to have a, a formal reaffirmation of love to him. He's going to be welcomed back into the church. The church are going to forgive him and comfort him. We should release the church, of course, from any kind of resentment and anger. But that reaffirming in love for this individual, this man, should encourage him. He's back. He's part of the church again. He's forgiven. He's loved. 
Paul is not alone here. Let's recognise that. Jesus himself in the Lord's Prayer is clear. He calls us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He dedicates a whole parable in Matthew 18 to the unmerciful, the unforgiving heart. See, Paul, like Jesus, is calling the church here in Corinth to live out the forgiveness that they know in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not optional. If you're sat here thinking, oh, I'm going to just, oh, you don't understand how bad, this is not optional. Paul demands us to forgive. But do you know what the wonderful assurance of the gospel is that we have the grace to forgive in and through him. Yes, Christ demands us to forgive, but empowers us by his spirit. The spirit we saw, that kind of threefold seal in uh, chapter one. Uh, the spirit is spoken of there. He set his seal of ownership on it. He's put his spirit in our hearts at his deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Wonderful. We have been entrusted with the spirit of God. And if you're a Christian here today, please know that therefore no one is beyond forgiveness in your life. However much they have hurt you. Now flip that around. So I think it's an important application There will be some of us here sat today who have done things that we know about and no one else knows about and we are utterly, utterly ashamed of them. And perhaps we sit here today and think that we are beyond forgiveness and love. Love of others here, forgiveness of others here and love and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think that today you do not understand the gospel What we see here is and what Paul is driving the church toward and I pray for us too is that any attempt we make to forgive those who have hurt us it will be met by an overflowing grace of God by the Spirit working through our hearts. So Paul speaks of the offender and calls the church to forgive and affirm their love for him. Now we're going to turn to the last three verses and Paul puts his focus now very much on the church. Uh, in Corinth here. So he encourages them, look at it, to be obedient in everything. Those last, that last point on our sheets. Paul has written this uh, severe letter, hasn't he, to demand uh, discipline for this man. But he also writes in verse 9, as he says, to test the obedience of the Corinthians. Look at it. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. <coughs> the question is, he's saying, Will you, will you dare to exercise discipline within the church? It's hard. Would they see the seriousness of this offender's sin and, and see the seriousness of them standing idly by while he had a kind of character assassinated Paul himself? Now, would they do anything? Would they try to lovingly restore this man and reaffirm him into the congregation? It's really hard much easier to just hush things up isn't it brush things under the carpet we are incredibly good at that in our culture aren't we we might even use the excuse to not act saying oh we don't want to cause a fuss and we i think enough damage has been caused so far let's just let's just move on but paul is an apostle of god he understands that obedience to him authorized and empowered by god of course as an apostle was obedience to god himself and the gospel of jesus christ 
And therefore, what Paul is demanding of the church here, what any ethical demand that he makes on the church, it never comes from him alone. We must be very careful of individuals who make ethical or moral demands or exercise discipline in a way that is contrary from God's word. Sadly, this kind of thing has been in the news over the last few days. I say allegedly very carefully because it is that still. An individual at a Christian summer camp may, many years ago, many, many years ago, sought to discipline boys on that camp in ways that could not be justified biblically. And by contrast, the moral and ethical demands that Paul speaks of here were not of his own making, but always in line with the gospel that he proclaimed. In verse 10, look at it, Paul assures the church that he would support the reinstatement of this man back into the church. He's forgiven him, so the church should do that and welcome him back. Now Paul seems to play down what has gone on. Look at that, it's, if there was anything to forgive. It's an amazing understatement, isn't it? He says, of course, there was something to forgive. We, we know that. But his emphasis here in this last, last couple of verses is, is very much on the corporate nature of the church. That they together with Paul, not Paul personally, but corporately, they must forgive this man. They must restore him back into the church. And Paul says all this, as he says, look at it, in the sight of Christ for your sake. That is with Christ as his witness. With Christ empowering him as an apostle. With the approval of Christ as well. But this final verse, I think, is the most chilling. Let's turn to that as we close. In verse 11. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Let us not be naive as a church. Satan is literally, their word there is to do, out to defraud us, to outwit the church of God. You see, if, if the church thinks that not forgiving this man is a small step away from the gospel of forgiveness, but one that they can just justify and overlook and say, oh yeah, we do everything else, but kind of that church discipline stuff, oh, we'll leave that, it's a bit uncomfortable. Or we've done everything else, but we're not willing to forgive. Well, Paul essentially says, if you let Satan steer your life, your decisions, your morals, your ethics in area, any area, if you choose to ignore God's word in anything, in discipline within the church, in being will, unwilling to forgive, if that is you, well, Paul's warning is clear, isn't it? You, you will be outwitted. And therefore Paul urges the church to reaffirm their love for this man, to forgive him, to restore him back into the church, which would have meant to, to, to come and pray. He's been expelled to come back in, to pray with the church, to sing with the church, to, to hear God's word taught within the church, to share the Lord's Supper, that wonderful symbol of unity within the church, to serve in the church. My friends, if you're struggling to forgive someone, however much they have hurt you, can I suggest first you consider the gospel and the forgiveness that you have received in Christ. And know that the greatest offender can be forgiven by Christ in his strength. With the Spirit of God in you, you too can forgive. And if you can't, can I suggest that you do not share the Lord's Supper with us today. Until you can truly forgive the one who has hurt you. 
it would be inappropriate to do so. I'm aware of the time. I want to give some time for questions at the end, but I thought I would finish with a little illustration I found helpful. I've completely stolen it. Um, I'm totally unashamed by that. Um, It's from an extract from a book by a lady called Corrie ten Boom. The book's called The Hiding Place, and in it she recalls a meeting uh, after World War II with a guard from Ravensbrück concentration camp where her sister died, and she and many other women underwent horrible indignities whilst they were in that concentration camp. This is a quote from a book called The Hiding Place. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing centre at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing. Betsy, that's her sister's pale, blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he washed my sins away, speaking of Christ. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people of Blumendahl, the need, sorry, and I, who had preached so often to the people of Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so I again breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. And while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. It's a moving account. I think the point is this. Yes, you can do it too. We've experienced the forgiveness of Christ and therefore we must do this with his grace. So as we come to share the Lord's Supper in a moment, we do so and we will reflect on his body and blood which has offered us forgiveness and ultimate forgiveness in him. But we consider the words of Paul here too. They're called to obedience. They're called to forgive others. I'm going to pause there. I wonder, there may be some questions, some points of clarification. Uh, We do this sometimes, I think it would be helpful today particularly.